and welcome to another episode of Interpreting India. 2021 has been defined by a deadly second wave of COVID-19, precarious geopolitical relations and a rapidly evolving technological landscape. This season, we at Carnegie India are examining many of the challenges and opportunities that India will confront in the coming decade. I'm your host Priya and this week we will take a look at the cryptocurrency space in India. Before we begin though, I'd like to tell you a little bit about Carnegie India's flagship event, the Global Technology Summit themed Global Meets Local. Join us this year from 14th to 16th December to discuss and deliberate on contemporary issues like encryption, cybersecurity, sustainability, public health, fintech and more with policymakers, entrepreneurs and professionals from across the world. I would encourage you to visit our specially curated website gts2021.com to register and check out the latest agenda, speakers list and other resources. The website is also linked in the description. In early 2020, the Supreme Court of India overturned the Reserve Bank's circular which prohibited regulated financial entities like banks from dealing with cryptocurrency related activities. Following this decision, cryptocurrency purchases in the country have soared. According to a recent Chain Analysis Global Cryptocurrency Adoption Index, India ranks second worldwide. India has also clocked a higher share of activity in the decentralized finance or DeFi space, a fast emerging use case of cryptocurrencies according to Chain Analysis. World over, cryptocurrencies have reached a market cap of more than 2.5 trillion dollars in little over a decade since Satoshi Nakamoto, the person or persons who remain anonymous to this day, released the white paper on Bitcoin and set off this wild ride. But the rapid rise in cryptocurrencies is met with concern from the government and regulators, especially due to their price volatility and lack of transparency. In the last month itself, the Squid Game token fiasco led to massive losses for the investors of this cryptocurrency. In recognition of these concerns, the union government in India has listed a bill to be tabled at the winter session of the parliament slated to begin next week. As per its description, the bill seeks to prohibit all private cryptocurrencies although with some exceptions to promote the underlying technology of cryptocurrency and its uses the bill also seeks to provide a facilitative framework in favor of an official digital currency to be issued by the RBI in this episode of interpreting india we will analyze the indian cryptocurrency landscape primarily through the lens of policy and regulation what sort of investors characterize india's cryptocurrency space how could a renewed ban on all private cryptocurrencies play out and finally what does the global growth of cryptocurrencies indicate for the future of india's financial system joining us today to discuss these questions is tanvi ratna tanvi is the chief executive officer of policy 4.0 a research and policy advisory firm she is also a global blockchain and cryptocurrency policy advisor with extensive experience working in the global regulatory environments of world's leading blockchain hubs for her work in blockchain policy She was awarded a prestigious fellowship at the New America Foundation in Washington DC. She has had a long career of advising global decision makers including the US Foreign Affairs Committee on Capitol Hill as well as ministries and state governments in India on policy. Tanvi's organization has also recently released a paper proposing an innovative approach for crypto regulation in India called the India Wallet. Tanvi, welcome to Interpreting India. Delighted to have you with us today. Congratulations on your new paper it's both informative and shall i say timely as well Thank you very much Priya it's a pleasure to be here All right let's start with a little bit of background for our listeners Tanvi can you tell us a little bit about how the cryptocurrency market and ecosystem in India have evolved over the last decade 
And uh, in parallel, how have the Indian government and regulatory bodies dealt with the growth of cryptocurrencies? Yeah, thanks, Priya. I think that's a very big question. I will uh, try to do justice to that. Um, so I think the origins of everything starts in India around 2013. Uh, that's when uh, you know the first sort of Bitcoin clubs and uh, enthusiasts start uh, really coming up. Uh, that's also when the RBI starts releasing its first few circulars saying that uh, uh, this is not recognized uh, activity. This is not legal tender. It is in no way regulated by the RBI. So you are at risk with these instruments. Uh, and this is a series of notifications that they uh, come out with continuously until uh, about 2017 or so. And uh, around this time in 2013, the industry uh, hasn't been an industry so much. It has been, uh, you know, some enthusiasts, people start uh, buying uh, Bitcoin. Uh, I think uh, trading also is not that big an industry globally at that point. If you remember uh, around that period was when there was a silk route uh, scandal where the FBI had, uh, you know, found a dark net marketplace and uh, crypto is generally seen as this very fringe and uh, sort of uh, problematic uh, uh, currency. And uh, it, there, there wasn't much uh, to it apart from some uh, enthusiasts. And then uh, I think you see after 2016, 17, when the price of Bitcoin really started rising, uh, is when uh, you started having, uh, you know, the first few exchanges. Uh, so uh, there were a few early players. Uh, and uh, I think uh, some of them are fairly good exchanges. And uh, they were mostly not uh, as, uh, you know, not trading as many kinds of coins and things as you see today. Uh, but uh, it had become a fairly robust business model and uh, there were more players getting into the space. Uh, but it was just exchanges at that time. I don't think there was much by way of uh, developers and uh, technical activity. And then this had really started taking off in 2017. So um, globally, there was this ICO boom. And you would have heard of uh, a lot of ICO scams and a lot of projects. Many, many countries started, uh, uh, you know, clamping down on a variety of, uh, uh, you know, irrational activity that they felt in the space. So uh, 2018, Bitcoin's price had peaked and ICOs had peaked and uh, the SEC started a whole round of subpoenas, uh, hauled in over 80 projects, I think, within a week. Uh, and uh, you saw many governments cracking down, uh, you know, in Korea, in Japan, and all these places. And in India, uh, what happened is we didn't see that sort of a crackdown, which was going like player by player, or uh, regulators were sort of enforcing uh, action on players. That didn't happen. But you did see in 2018 directly this circular from the RBI where they sort of overnight uh, overnight uh, placed a prohibition on what uh, Indian banks could do with any kind of crypto service, right? Uh, and that was a very wide and sweeping prohibition. And it came overnight, uh, but it didn't come out of nowhere because India had just that week witnessed one of its biggest scandals uh, in cryptocurrency. And that was the Amit Bharadwaj uh, scam. 
and uh, and uh, right after this, at uh, the back of all this tightening regulation, you saw the RBI circular. But that circular, uh, I think, really sent uh, shock waves. And uh, I remember at the point I was working with some of the state governments, um, and uh, you know we were working on. Uh, uh, blockchain. We've just concluded the largest hackathon in India with, uh, you know, there were blockchain DLT folks, but there were also crypto folks, uh, lots of enthusiasm about what Bangalore could be in this ecosystem. And uh, within a week, you had this, uh, you know, circular. And then, uh, you know, even the governments didn't know what to do. Uh, and at that point, I think, you uh, 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 you know, the, a lot of things happened suddenly in the industry. So over the next year, I would say that whole, uh, there were very much those chilling effects of regulation, right? Uh, and I think that whole year, you could see a sort of freeze that had happened, right? Uh, there were some businesses that survived, like which are now quite big, like Wazirx and things, which uh, basically... Uh, managed to find loopholes or workarounds or peer-to-peer channels. Uh, people managed somehow through these OTC de- desks and things. But I think activity was very crippled and uh, uh, it was quite uh, quite limited. I mean, investment and everything was sort of uh, uh, shriveling into India. And uh, at that point, globally, uh, what had happened is that a lot of countries were coming out with their laws, right? They had started coming out with proper regimes uh, and money started really flowing into crypto, uh, but it did not come to India because we didn't have a regime. And then uh, the industry didn't really have a recourse, I guess, or that's what they felt. Uh, but but uh, they uh, they moved this case, and uh, you know I think we all know um, what happened with that case. It was a, a very long process, took two years, uh, but in the end, the circular that the RBI came out with was struck down. Uh, and in the meantime, on the government side, there had already been two interministerial committees uh, that had been constituted, and um, uh, in 2019 is when that report finally came out in public domain, which uh, stated very clearly a full ban on uh, on cryptocurrency. So um, I think I'll stop with the lead up to the Supreme Court case, because I know uh, we'll probably explore that in, in some detail. So I think after the Supreme Court case, there's been a different environment. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Because uh, I was looking up some statistics and... Uh, um, I think uh, by some estimates, there are about uh, 1.5 crore or 15 million retail investors in cryptocurrencies in India. So it, it, it seems to me that uh, there is massive popularity today. Um, so is, has the situation changed? And uh, can you also tell us a little bit about which segments of our population are the biggest investors in this space today? And in the absence of the government itself putting out any data on this, how reliable do you think these numbers are? Yeah, I think uh, that's a lot of good questions, right? And I think uh, coming to this data point, I would I would maybe just start there because uh, what is what has happened in India is from the start, um, you've not had regulatory oversight over this industry, right? Which is a, a bit strange, right? If you have a problematic industry, the first thing you want to do is put some kind of ring fencing there. You want to put some kind of reporting. But I think the challenge has been that, you know, the minute you do that, you also give legitimacy 
to this industry, right? Uh, and they have used that at many times, like in the Supreme Court case, uh, the verdict was sort of touted everywhere as a, you know a sign of giving legitimacy um, to the industry. So I think uh, there has been this vacuum from the regulator side, and I think that has sort of uh, you know I think there's acknowledgement that that has sort of led to where we are uh, today, but. Uh, uh, there basically isn't any data apart from what you're told is the data, right? Um, and uh, that's where, you know, that was also one of the motivations for the solution we came up with. But uh, at the moment, uh, user data is fully um, under the purview of exchanges and uh, uh, it's what they tell you is what you know. There's no auditing of this. Um, even if you could do any blockchain auditing, uh, which is fairly transparent, like you can audit ledgers uh, in, in cryptocurrency, you can understand activity, but these are all centralized exchanges. So their holdings and their operations are not known. They're quite opaque. So uh, you don't really have any sense of uh, accurate data, but uh, there was a very inflated number that came in the newspapers. But since then, I think the industry has been coalescing around a one to two crore user figure uh, for, for India for, for now. Um, but yes, in terms of activity that happened after the Supreme Court verdict, uh, I mean, a lot of things started happening happening simultaneously. So uh, in the industry itself, a lot of the exchanges which had stuck around started getting more investment, right? Uh, and uh, what was also happening globally around crypto is... Um, in the year of 2020 is when you had the rise of DeFi, uh, which is decentralized finance. And uh, that became like a huge wave of its own. And now it is the more predominant form of uh, crypto activity. And that uh, was uh, like, tr saw tremendous growth, right? I think within a week, you had, uh, uh, you know, multiple millions move into it. Within a year, you've had 100 billion move into it, right? Uh, and uh, that is a huge amount of capital. And a lot of the developers for it, a lot of the great developers, uh, I would um, say are from India, right? And um, it may not be recorded anywhere, but uh, there has been capital that's moved from there. And after the Supreme Court verdict, you saw a sort of next generation of projects come up. Uh, so you had the elders uh, sort of who had <laughs> survived through that period. Uh, and then they also mentored new teams and uh, there was also a lot more capital and you had DeFi and you had new business models, right? Because crypto has not had too many business models before this. Now it has like too many to, to name, right? Because so much can be monetized. Um, so you saw a huge growth. Uh, I would say there are actually, uh, even if we just look at last year, um, there would at least be 10 to 12, I think around 18 projects that received a very high quality funding, very high quality projects uh, from all the major investors in the space, uh, uh, the Sequoia or the uh, 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 you know, the paradigm or polychain, all these are big funds in the space. Uh, so, yeah, I think now the activity is very, very uh, fast. And uh, I think India is definitely seen as uh, one of the biggest rising sort of uh, centers for this. 
Um, but yes, I, in terms of data, uh, I think your guess is as good as mine. What segments of population do you think are the biggest investors, though? Apart from the big names that you mentioned, which are institutional, when you, when it comes to population or retail investors, who's actually investing in the space? Who's actually trading? Would you would you have any sense of it? Uh, I think a few months ago, I would have told you clearly that, uh, you know, there, it's a certain type of uh, investor, uh, you know, uh, young, high risk appetite, uh, good technical understanding, um, very savvy with, uh, you know, the basics you need here are not like charts and uh, uh, reports you need Reddit and Discord and uh, you know <laughs> all these other communities to understand what's good. But I think now I, I don't know who isn't in it. You know, like now I, I like just as of last month. I mean, I've had my parents ask me about which coins are good. I've had my grandparents debate. Uh, you know that uh, is this a good investment or not? Uh, uh, you know, now I, I, yeah, now just, I mean, people who meet me for the first time, I mean, uh, they, it, we never even get past, uh, you know, the first question. And then the question immediately is what should I invest in, right? Uh, I mean, the minute they know that I work in the space, that's what they are. So uh, now I don't know. I think now it's sort of blurring. Um uh, but I, I do think the, the majority of people who have invested uh, or maybe hold, let's say, maybe more than 50% of their investments in crypto, I think would be very much the younger generation simply because um, it's a fairly difficult space to navigate, right? Like if you are a traditional stock investor and now, uh, you know, you, you read, uh, uh, you know, you, you, re- you read news from certain sites and you track certain charts and uh, you do your due diligence, like that uh, somewhere goes for a toss here, right? Because there's some uh, rumor in some telegram group and then the spike uh, price spikes like 70,000%, right? So uh, <laughs> you can't keep up with it if you are very used to traditional ways. I think that becomes a barrier uh, to people. Um, you, you might club all that under education, but I think it's also a matter of uh, culture. It's not just about investor education. I know what question I have for you after the podcast, uh, but leaving that aside, I think <laughs> uh, uh, I think I'd like to. I think this is a good question now to possibly address, which is what factors uh, led to the RBI's prohibition on banks in 2018. What kind of risks uh, did they perceive uh, that led them down that road? And um, maybe you know, in pa- after that, you could also explain a little bit about what factors then led to the quashing of the circular by the Supreme Court. Why didn't they sort of agree with the RBI? Yeah, so uh, I think the uh, Supreme Court's reasoning has been very transparent, and they've put it out there. From the RBI's perspective, I mean, um, uh, you know, there's some things I can say. I mean, we we have had the fortune of being a part of, uh, you know, some of these celebrations is also a member of the RBI MPC who's on our board uh, of our think tank. Uh, but I think the monetary concerns uh, RBI has also been fairly vocal about. Uh, so there are a couple of them, right? So crypto is uh, quite problematic uh, from a monetary perspective. And now uh, you will see a lot more countries echoing this, uh, not just the RBI, because as of this year, now many central banks are uh, raising the alarm on this as a monetary 
uh, and financial stability risk. So the first risk I would say under monetary issues is of course financial stability, right? Um, this is an asset class that uh, has no link to your real economy, right? Uh, you don't know who controls it. Uh, you, it has no productive power for your economy the way that the financial sector does, right? So when you have a lot of savings getting diverted to this asset class, uh, it sort of works like draining the swamp, right? Like it, it just you're taking the money out of the economy, uh, but it's going somewhere. Where where it can't then be redirected or it can't be leveraged in any way. So at least in the financial sector, when I have savings going into banks, I can convert that into lending and then I have a monetary transmission process and then that can get, uh, that has that money multiplier effect, right? Like what do you do with crypto, right? And uh, what happens when substantial money starts going in there? And uh, then what they are creating is a fully parallel uh, financial system to yours, right? So I think for any central banker, it's fairly obvious uh, that uh, this is not something we can have, right? Uh, you're basically feeding the beast, uh, you know, if you're allowing this. Uh, so I think that uh, is the most obvious concern. And uh, I think now uh, you, there's not a single central bank in the world I know that embraces uh, crypto, apart from the ones that don't have their own monetary policy, like El Salvador, uh, which is a dollarized country, right? Uh, so uh, I think financial stability is the most obvious one. Um, the second one, which I think applies a lot more to countries like us and um, uh, is around convertibility of currency, there are multiple risks, right? So uh, if you see apart from about 17 countries in the world, uh, most have some form of capital controls. And um, we are, of course, a very prime example of uh, such a country that has capital controls. And uh, they're there for good reason, because we have um, we have high exchange rate risk, right? So you want to very much stabilize uh, the exchange rate. And for that, you can't have too much uh, external uh, supply around your money. So I think... Um, that has been probably more tricky because there's been absolutely no precedent uh, of what can be done around that. Uh, there again, I feel like that was also one of the motivations for the model that we built. And, you know, we've been hearing a lot from other central bankers in Latin America and places like that, which are also very worried about this, that this will be something useful. Uh, so how do you manage exchange rate risk? How do you manage how much capital moves in and out of your economy? And then the most um, uh, touted one, again, is just the basic KYC uh, uh, money laundering risk. Uh, you know, who is this money going to? Is that recipient even in your borders or it's someone external? Uh, the cross-border flow, the KYC, like all of these are... Uh, uh, as big uh, risks because uh, is it becoming an avenue for money laundering because it is fairly pseudonymous. And um, <clears throat> the challenge has been that nothing you've done for the last, you know, 50 odd years, uh, 50, 70 years uh, seems to be helpful right now as a tool, right? Uh, how do you even impose those things? Uh, and so it's a fairly difficult problem. It's not uh, something that you can solve looking back. And I think uh, to dedicate that much of um, 
policy time and uh, that much attention of a policy agenda to this has also not been there for a while right it has not been a priority issue for a long time i mean uh, i mean we've been struggling with covid uh, for the last you know years i mean it's eaten up every priority there is and uh, well the supreme court didn't didn't really seem to agree with the rbi then uh, i think the judgment was delivered in march last year uh, why didn't they agree with the rbi's uh, perception or sense of what the risks were around cryptocurrencies yes i think the the supreme court verdict i think is uh, by far the finest document yet that has come out in india on the <clears throat> on uh, any sort of policy thought process right so i think the supreme court said many interesting things the first point where i felt they agreed actually with the rbi is they said this is currency right it doesn't matter what you're calling it in any other country we don't know why we are playing a pretense of calling it an asset or a utility let's be real this is money okay uh, i found that very very refreshing and very direct right and they spent many pages uh, elaborating that then uh, i think the other interesting thing now when they started um, talking about why this uh, uh, why this circular was not a right move i think they made many important points right the first they said as you said rightly there was an empirical data to show that uh, this was in fact harming the economy so you're saying that there is financial stability risk most central banks have done assessments to judge that right like the imf itself does assessments to judge that and this year incidentally uh, they have for the first time listed cryptocurrency as an identified risk uh, to financial stability um but there was no data as such here in the indian case there was no study uh, the rbi even in its own submissions to the court has uh, nowhere been able to highlight that like how do you make the case that there is financial stability risk right and for that you actually need to start monitoring the activity otherwise you can't make that case so it's been a sort of a vicious cycle that was the first one uh, i think also the second thing they said is you did not look at options right one of the grounds on which they Target is on the proportionality ground, right? Was this a proportional measure to the threat that was uh, stated, right? Uh, where were the options you considered, right? Why would you go straight to this sort of a prohibition? There's no justification for that. Um, and uh, uh, yes, but then I think uh, I do think they sort of uh, created a, a ripe. Uh, backdoor in a way for uh, the the sort of legislation we're seeing now because they said quite clearly that uh, you know that this is only holding because there isn't a law in the land uh, and the day there is a law uh, this is not going to hold and uh, we are not going to challenge that law like we are not going to hear any pleas to challenge that law because we could be doing that for every single law in the country and that's not our job uh you know uh so uh i, I think the uh, the the supreme court very much on a very thin ground of uh, a violation of your constitutional right to business and trade um which is i think article 19 1g uh, on that ground is uh, the justification which they struck it down and they call this um an unproportional uh, measure taken by the rbi think though that the rbi is in a position to demonstrate to the harm empirically today because you know we 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 just discussed the rise of cryptocurrencies in india right uh there have been a lot of investments a lot more investors so what's your sense 
because we do have a bill that is being uh, that is probably going to be tabled at the winter session and it does uh, from its description uh, it says that uh, it seeks to prohibit uh, all private cryptocurrencies maybe with some exceptions for the underlying technology and its uses so is rbi uh, in a position to demonstrate the harm much more in in a, in a, in a uh, more effective manner than it was able to at the supreme court I think that's a very good question to which I don't unfortunately have an answer but my guess would be that uh, in the absence of even basic data of how many people are using it and what volumes they are moving into this uh, it's very hard to make that case right you you need at least that much information and uh, when you're making it at an RBI level it can't be based on guesstimates right it has to be actual uh, empirical information so i'm not very sure of that but um, i mean if the case is being made at a global level then yes there is uh, some precedent but i also think in this case uh, see the 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 angle that sometimes uh, get like when you have this national security angle to things right uh, then a lot of a uh, lot of like and we've seen this around the world right a lot of things which are assumed fundamental rights and uh, uh, you know which can be argued on other grounds sort of go out of the window right if you, if you're saying that my sovereignty is at stake as a nation then well nothing else uh, is a bigger argument than that right but um, yes i i think uh, um i do think the the challenge of regulating this i think there's understanding that uh, it may not be completely uh, impossible to stop this from happening like if you uh, do if you do uh, thoroughly ban any users in payments uh, of any sort right and you put penalties on that uh, and you maybe allow the trading or uh, you know these activities to happen that's uh, that's one way that people are, are thinking thinking about it uh, i think also the way we have uh, proposed by uh, you know um, having these uh, uh, identified wallets and maybe placing some caps in terms of financial stability that's another way to possibly also tackle it and you know you talked about the chilling effect that the rbi circular had when it was released and now we have potentially a bill that might be passed at the winter session So uh what effect do you think the bill is going to have and is this the re- end of the road for cryptocurrencies I think we we are still a bit premature to comment on that because the bill draft has not really been released or it hasn't even reached the parliament yet uh so we don't know what final shape uh they have taken but I think this time there has been some attention on uh, exemptions that uh, you know there is a uh just a tiny phrase in there which talks about exemptions and i think there might be some assets exempted uh there are some plans uh, from the offshoring center to do things but uh yes overall um, um i i don't i don't see it as being a bill that really embraces uh, this technology in a, in a major way but we'll have to see the text is what you're saying yes Uh, and 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 on the bill itself um i just want you to uh, comment a little bit upon the you know the the phrase private cryptocurrencies what are private cryptocurrencies yeah i think this is a fairly standard phrase i'm not sure why there's any confusion i don't think there's any confusion about what it means i mean private cryptocurrencies are simply a non sovereign currency 
so anything that is not the rupee is a private currency. Uh, this is a term that's also been used globally by uh, you know the FATF or other regulators. I, I'm not sure that this is really a, a, a point of debate. So essentially, anything that's not a central bank issued digital currency is a private cryptocurrency. Yes. So moving on then, um, while we have uh, possibly a bill on this uh, in the coming weeks, is there an alternate way to regulate uh, cryptocurrencies? What are some of the challenges that such an alternate means of regulation could encounter? And uh, what I sort of wanted to, you to delve into a little bit is how have you tackled this in your latest publication? Yeah, uh, I think um, I think this is where uh, you know a lot of uh, uh, this is where a lot of the attention should really focus on uh, in the public debate because we've spent years talking about who issues it and what it is, uh, but. Uh, I think the first premise for us and even building this publication was this whole question of what is the asset? How do we fit it into our old frameworks? This is the hardest question by far, right? It's not something that's just been hard for India. I mean, we still have debates in the US about whether the Ripple is a security or a commodity, right? There's a lot of debates now about whether most like Uniswap is a security. Like uh, a lot of uh, tokens are now going to come into those questions. Uh, I mean, it's it's a not an easy question to answer because, uh, you know, this token was not made thinking about your old frameworks, right? Uh, this is a very different asset type, uh, you know, and the way it works, the things it can do, uh, the way it can change its function depending on the technological context is very different from what, uh, you know, traditional financial assets do. Um, and uh, I mean, uh, I, I very much believe that you have to start by understanding what this is, and then you can build a decent approach, right? If you start from the filter of let's try and fit it into something, there will it'll, you'll always fall short in your uh, regulatory exercise. So we stepped back from this question and we said this question has to be tackled. We 100% understand it has to be tackled because somewhere your whole regulatory apparatus is geared for that. Um, but maybe it's not the first thing we look at, right? Maybe we phase out our approach. And first we look at how we can tackle this rather than what uh, we what it is, um, how we ring fence it, how we actually uh, enforce or even manage any regulation on it. And for that, we work with the first premise of uh, the technology itself, uh, which is that every single asset, no matter what it is, uh, is just a pair of cryptographic keys. Uh, it doesn't matter if it's a Bitcoin, uh, it doesn't matter if it's an NFT, uh, it doesn't matter if it's a million dollars in crypto, it doesn't matter if it's $10. Uh, all it is in reality is just a public key and a private key. And everything you are enabled to do in crypto is because of these two things. So you own the asset when you own the private key. You're able to send it anywhere to anyone when you own the private key. Uh, you're able to sign into different applications, even in decentralized finance, if you have a public address and you have a wallet. And everything around these keys is enabled by this piece of infrastructure called the wallet. So crypto wallet is very essential. 
uh, it becomes a sort of uh, gateway. It becomes uh, your sort of passport, your identity, um, your signing authority, and uh, all operations are undertaken from this level. So we said, if this is a piece of uh, critical infrastructure, why don't you start by ring fencing that? And why don't you just, it's it's a very simple piece of infrastructure. Uh, you can easily integrate KYC on this because I think in India, we underestimate what we are capable of doing as a state. And we overestimate the complexity of the problem. Uh, and I think we have underestimated the power of something like India stack in dealing with cryptocurrency because this is a fully digital asset and you have a fully digital identity. And uh, when you merge the two, uh, there's really not much left in terms of uh, anonymity or you know, this is a fully transparent asset where the ledger is transparent, where what you're doing, where you're sending it to is transparent. So um, we said make a KYC wallet. Uh, it's a very simple solution. Once you make a KYC wallet, you do two things. One is obviously you know who's doing what. Your issues around data and activity and all those go away in one go. But you also define a jurisdiction on crypto activity. Right. So you you define a jurisdiction on what is otherwise a completely decentralized activity. So all the activity that goes from these India wallets is Indian activity. Uh, and when the money flows to any other wallet, that counts as a cross-border activity. Right. Um and then, yes, then you get into the questions of, well, how does it limit other routes and things like that? And then there are other checks we built into our proposal for that. Right. So what you're saying is that the key to regulating cryptocurrencies is a key. Yes. <laughs> so essentially, the possibly the current approaches in terms of uh, putting cryptocurrencies in little cubby holes, you know, whether it's asset or commodity or utility tokens or whatever, is not going to um, benefit very much. So just get down to the basics and you know, ring fence the wallet is what you're saying, right? Uh, but uh, on the other hand, I mean, um, how do you stop, um, you know, whether it's exchanges or other operators from offering an unregulated wallet to me or from me using an unregulated wallet? That's still possible. You could still have, um, you know, undesirable activities um, being conducted via that route. Yes, and I think there... The the key thing to understand is that all activity that needs a link to the rupee, uh, like once you're moving from the Indian economy into the crypto economy, that whole process is ring fenced by the wallet, right? So once that that becomes the only legitimate channel for you to interact with the crypto economy, anything else you do, which right now is also at risk of being deemed black money. Uh, but once you have created a legitimate channel, then any other routes you take will get deemed uh, black money, most probably. And there are already fairly, uh, they're actually stricter provisions than what I'm saying that are being contemplated in the bill. Like we, we think this is probably a more lighter touch approach, but you have one channel. This channel allows you to work with any part of the crypto ecosystem, whether it's a DeFi platform or it's an exchange or it's a NFT gateway. It works for 
pretty much every form of activity in crypto, which actually links to your first question, which is what what's the drawback in focusing on different kinds of tokens? Well, the drawback is that this keeps mutating, right? Today, you have three kinds of tokens. Now, when I look at updated classifications of tokens, there are 12 types or, uh, you know, this will become 20 types maybe in some years. And then you will keep making new laws and you will keep retraining your regulators and um, keep introducing new compliance because uh, you are sort of uh, constantly trying to fit what is uh, new uh, into what is old, right? And that's, a, I think, a harder problem, right? Uh, whereas if you take the Indian approach where, you know, we've done it with other problems, we've built some tech infrastructure and then we've built some ring fencing regulation. So you build a wallet, around it you build regulation that this is the legitimate channel. You can easily integrate with the Indian banking system if you do this. Uh, once you get KYC, you can get this wallet. Um, and uh, then in a way, it sort of uh, legalizes uh, what uh, becomes your channel, right? But does it mean that other wallets go away? No. Um, but it's just that now when you move from this wallet into any other wallet, uh, you know, crypto is a very difficult technology uh, to do legitimate, illegitimate activity with actually, uh, because it's a completely traceable technology. So if I am in a KYC wallet uh, and I'm trying to then launder that money and move it into like a MetaMask or something, well, once you have um, any any point in that chain is identified, then um, it's very easy for forensics to track anything that's illegitimate. So once uh, you have so, uh, robust KYC happening, uh, even if it's for 80% of users, uh, what that gives is, uh, you know, at a forensic level, you will be able to protect up to, you know, 99% of the users because uh, there will always be links in transactions between wallets that are here in the India wallet and any other wallets that are being used in the world. So at the moment, even without KYC, to a large extent, they are able to identify it. So if you build infrastructure, uh, which is sort of a universally KYC infrastructure, then there's very little that can really go wrong out of the Indian crypto ecosystem. And I think what it will take, of course, is that capacity building at the law enforcement agency level. Uh, but I think there, there is some readiness uh, to sort of build that. Right. That was my next question, actually, for you. You know, you mentioned an interesting point about how the regulators will have to train themselves as crypto sort of uh, mutates. Um, so the next question was going to be, how should the regulators prepare for your idea of creating an India wallet and then regulating that to ring fence the risks around cryptocurrencies? Yeah, I, I think that's still a great question because um, at the moment, the challenge you have is uh, I don't think there is a single regulator in India which is sort of ready to take on this responsibility, right? Because it's a huge responsibility. A lot can go wrong and a lot can just, you know, sort of be blamed on them, right? Uh, but I, what I will say is, uh, you know, this is a multi 
dimensional asset from we had actually given a recommendation that um you know you should ideally have a joint working group of sorts established uh, between different players uh, you could call it a separate regulator i don't think that makes sense because at the end of the day they will be uh, dividing themselves up in the same verticals of function as the existing regulators right they will be looking at securities and like, so unless your legal framework is fully changing it doesn't make sense to have a separate regulator but even if you have a task force or something that uh, and the, the, you know most countries have done this they have this hub and spoke model they create a hub where different regulators start working together on this and within 2 years they have started they have built capacity even within their own agencies you know then they start building internal teams and this has happened in the US as well like there was a CFTC hub there was the SEC hub uh, and now these have sort of uh, taken off as either their own verticals or you know they've sort of built capacity inside the organization uh, i think that's a very good approach uh, i i think with this india wallet what we are creating in a way is a you're creating a common platform right so or every regulator basically has to plug into this right uh, and they all have different roles and responsibilities which can be fairly easily defined uh, on this right and if you create a task force what you can do is create a very agile body right so you don't need to pre prescribe everything which has generally been the tendency it's very difficult to enforce in this sort of a situation where you know the technology is evolving very fast and it's not really evolving just in india right it's happening globally and that sort of flows into india so you can't predefine everything um but you can create this single window system uh, of sorts where different people can plug in you can have joint working groups uh you can have you know issue based working groups like you can have people looking at illicit activity you can have people looking at you know uh, nfts or uh, you know the looking at uh, kyc issues or you know there there are a lot of things um I, i think also the custody of assets is a huge thing where you know that's not a proposal that we talked about here but basically how do you manage at an institutional level such huge uh, asset sizes um uh, so i think all these can be issues dealt with i think around those we have very solid frameworks already from the sebi uh but yes the the idea was how do you bring this uh, from a decentralized uh completely uh you know something that's just flowing in all directions how do you give it a a channel right from where it can flow right and i, I think then that creates the right platform for a lot of things to get streamlined right right and is there a precedent for this tanvi the approach that you have recommended um i mean i i think uh, there's not many countries that could have attempted something like this just because they don't have the kind of digital id infrastructure that we have they also don't have the culture of uh, building tech uh, the way we have right with upi and uh digi locker and things like that right this is not infrastructure that exists in most countries um so i do think this is um somewhere more an indian ethos uh to to sort of look at technology this way regulate fintech in this way um and i think this is actually uh, you know when when we started this we felt 
you know, there's a lot of chatter in uh, like media debates where, oh, Singapore has done this and we should just follow what other countries are doing and things like that. But uh, it's like, wait, I mean, nobody's actually solved your problem, which is uh, your exchange rate risk or your capital controls or things like that. So India will have to innovate its approach. Like there's really nothing you can take and copy paste, which will, uh, you know, and then solves all your problems. So uh, this is something we feel is um, w- will be more like an Indian model to this. And if this takes off, its repercussions are global because now every central bank needs a solution to look at financial stability and the way people look at Aadhaar and things now uh, in terms of infrastructure, uh, they might then start looking at this wallet as a sort of new generation idea that India has uh, pioneered an interesting approach, Tanvi. Thank you so much for joining us today and for all your insights on cryptocurrency space in India. Thank you very much, Priya. It was great to be in this conversation. We'll be back in two weeks with a new episode. To make sure you don't miss it, do subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also find us on social media on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. We'll also be hosting many such conversations and panels at the Global Technology Summit. So be sure to register at gts2021.com. Thank you for listening in. See you next time.